this next statement is not a spiritual thing. It's just sort of a thing thing. It's human nature to resist things we can't control or don't understand. We want to be open-minded. Some of us even pride ourselves on being open-minded. However, our worldviews, whatever your worldview is, our worldviews help us make sense of the world as we experience it. And when our worldview is challenged, our natural inclination is to become defensive and retreat to our personal talking points. Uh, this might explain many of your conversations with people who vote differently than you. Uh, this might explain some of your conversations recently with people who disagree with you. This might explain some of the conversations you've had with your parents when you came home from college. Uh, what did they do? They, they resisted. Uh, this might also explain some of your conversations with your own kids who, who came home with some new ideas, uh, some new friends, a new tattoo, and you had something to say about all that. Uh, we all have paradigms, narratives, prejudices, and experiences that sort of lock us into how we see the world around us. And all of this contributes to our natural resistance as humans to new things, to new ideas, to new ways of thinking, and new people. Because it's human nature to resist things we can't control or don't understand. We resist things that are new, especially if it conflicts with something old and comfortable. And this is why traveling, reading broadly, and eating different foods can be so helpful to keep us from getting stuck in our little corner of the world. Because regardless of which corner we grew up on, staying on that corner is limiting. It limits how we see the world, how we interpret events, and how we evaluate and see other people. More on that in just a bit. Today we're wrapping up our series called Grown Up Prayers. Uh, most of us have grown up with at least some experience or knowledge of prayer from the early days of our lives or maybe the early days of our spiritual journeys. But for some of us, our prayers didn't grow up with us. And what we ask really has changed maybe. But how and why we pray is pretty much the same. If the how and the why for your prayers and my prayers has remained the same, then likely our view of God has remained the same and hasn't grown up with us. So what we pray, how we pray, why we pray is shaped by our view of God, what we think God is like, and your prayers reflect your view of God. So what does the way that I pray say about my view of God? And if we're honest, we may discover that we have reduced God to a conscience cleanser, a lifeguard, genie, or a good luck charm. And most of our prayers are about us, give us, forgive me, or rescue me, or rescue someone I love. And consequently, for some of us, Prayer can be reduced to informing God of our needs, wants, and wishes. And if you want to understand your view of God, just listen to your prayers. So in the same way, Jesus' prayers reflected his view of God. And if you want to know what God is like, listen to Jesus' prayers or the way he instructs us to pray. And then Jesus would sort of come along and sort of demonstrate a different way to pray that seems to include a different what and a different how and a different why. And we discovered that the purpose of prayer is to align or realign ourselves with God's agenda. And we see that from Jesus' demonstration and teaching about prayer in Matthew verse or chapter 6. Pray like this, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is before we get to the, our requests, and it really start, start, stands in stark contrast to why many of us pray. We usually don't come to God to sort of surrender to his agenda. We come with our agenda, and our agenda is sort of to be forgiven, to be rescued, usually because we didn't surrender at the start of our day. However, to pray as Jesus instructed us to, we have to view God as God is and not as we imagine God to be. So to pray grown-up prayers, we need a, a grown-up view of God, the Jesus view of God that came to reveal God to humanity. And there are, there are several conversations with Jesus that sort of would illustrate this, that, that people didn't always see things 
as they were, even as Jesus was right there with them. And this first conversation we're going to look at is between Jesus and his 12 disciples. Uh, Philip was one of those disciples, and he's sitting with the other disciples and Jesus, and Jesus is speaking. And they aren't understanding what he's talking about. And we're going to start in reading in John chapter 14, and we're going to look at a couple different uh, passages. You can follow along the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, head to bible.com app. Once you're in the app, head to the more menu option in the bottom right corner, select events, and you can find our church. We're also going to have the notes and verses on the screen as well. And again, Philip is sort of starting to get frustrated. John chapter 14, verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Basically, Philip is saying, enough of those parables, Jesus. Enough of those analogies. Just show us the Father. And this is how Jesus responded. I have, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? The Jesus is saying that Philip won't get any closer to understanding what God is like than being with Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? Follow Jesus. However, when you follow Jesus, as these disciples learned, when you follow Jesus, it will require some change and some adjustments. And some of those changes involve giving up some assumptions and some of the things that we have believed for a long time. And that can be difficult to do because, again, it's human nature to resist things we can't control or don't understand. And this explains why the first century religious leaders resisted Jesus. It's why almost everyone around Jesus misunderstood him, even really up to the end. That people were sure they had Jesus figured out. Which at least partially led to Judas betraying Jesus. And is at least partially why the disciples bailed on Jesus. And, and yet all these disciples had been with Jesus for three years. And so they probably thought they knew what Jesus was up to. But they still had some growing up to do. In another conversation, Luke tells us, that the day before Jesus goes to die for the sins of the world, Jesus tries to tell his disciples something. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem, where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. And they thought they understood Jesus, but he kept talking about being tortured and killed, and they didn't get that. Uh, they probably didn't think that they sort of signed up to follow Jesus into those type of circumstances. But for some reason, they followed Jesus anyhow. Luke continues, but they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words were hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. And I think the reason the disciples failed to grasp what Jesus was talking about was at least partially because of their preconceived expectations and assumptions of Jesus. It sort of made them unable to hear, to see, and to understand or accept what Jesus was trying to say. Their assumptions about who Jesus was and who the Messiah would be were sort of so locked in that they almost locked Jesus out. They could not hear. They could not see. And they thought they knew. And this is understandable given the narratives that they were raised on a restored kingdom of Israel, their experience with the Romans, not to mention quite a bit of what we might call superstition in their faith. And all these things made it next to impossible to hear or to understand what Jesus was saying, or actually was saying, or to see what the future that Jesus was pointing to was all about. And all these things made it difficult to accept what God was up to in their world, and it was right before their eyes. They thought they knew, but they didn't know. They, they thought they knew but they were wrong, like me and maybe like you.
Uh, and this third conversation shows us just how differently the disciples understood the type of kingdom Jesus was establishing. Uh, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, we should call down fire from heaven to burn them up. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, some versions add a commentary of what Jesus said, or what he might have said, which is at least very easily deduced from other things Jesus did and actually taught. And he said, you won't realize what your hearts are like, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. So they went on to another village. And in this moment, these disciples really did not understand at all Jesus' mission in coming to earth. He didn't come to destroy people, but he came to save them. And it doesn't take long when you're reading the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that really uh, it wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that the disciples began to understand who God was and who Jesus was, even though they had been eyeball to eyeball with Jesus for three years. And then it would be another 20 years, uh, the conversion of Saul and a big church meeting, before this group of people would realize that Jesus came to save the entire world. That this good news was for everyone. It was 20 years before they would embrace Jesus' new command to love one another. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that should fill you with at least a little bit of concern or some humility. It certainly does for me because this should remove any theological arrogance that we have. Uh, it should cause all of us to wonder where we have it wrong. Where do I have it wrong? Where have we missed Jesus or at least misunderstood him? Like, who am I to think that I have it all figured out when the men and women who were face-to-face -face with Jesus so often did not understand him or did not understand what he was trying to communicate? And we are better off sort of waking up every day, approaching every day, every relationship, every decision with our hands open and our hearts wide open to the reality that we only know a little bit about anything. And there's a lot we don't know. We can only see what we can see, and it's possible there is more that we can't or don't see. And this might put sort of a new spin on Micah's famous statement that might just sort of summarize what posture we should all take in light of this. He says this, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And that last part sort of sits differently, thinking about how easily the disciples misunderstood Jesus. And as a result, what posture we should take as followers of Jesus 2,000 years later to walk humbly with our God because he might lead us in a different direction or a path or maybe for a different reason than we assumed. And really, again, this is a cue we can take from Jesus himself, who he also walked humbly with his God. And then there's something else that should really motivate us to walk humbly in our understanding of God and Jesus and what God was up to in the world. That throughout the New Testament, we see people who are in the presence of Jesus, but they can't see him or accept him for who he actually is. And it was more than just the 12 disciples. This conversation is number four, Luke chapter 18. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus was basically saying like, you should obey the commandments. And so he continues on. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And when Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow 
me. Now, this follow me wasn't like what we think of of following Jesus in the 21st century. This was literally following Jesus around the town starting that day or around the region. Jesus wanted him to join his group. And if you want to experience eternal life, you would say, you don't have to wait until you die. You can follow me to Jerusalem and you will see God's plan unfold right in front of you. But this rich young man could not see beyond his wealth. And consequently, we don't even know his name. Uh, Another group of people who struggled to see Jesus as he was, uh, they were called the Pharisees. And they thought Jesus couldn't possibly be from God because of who he associated with. Like they would say, we know God could not send someone into this world as his representative who would associate with those kinds of people. And in this fifth conversation, a Pharisee named Simon actually invites Jesus into his home for a meal. And while Jesus is there, a woman who was considered a sinner by the religious leaders took the role of a servant of washing Jesus' feet with her tears and some perfume. Uh, She could have been branded a sinner in that culture for a variety of reasons, But Simon the Pharisee is sort of sitting across the table from the Son of God, and yet his prejudice, his preconceived and ill-conceived assumptions about who God loves and who God doesn't love, it blinded him from seeing who is visiting in his home. And when it became clear that Jesus was not offended by this woman's proximity or her touch, Simon the Pharisee thought in his mind, which was a big mistake when you're in Jesus' presence, Luke chapter 7, verse 39, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, and translating Simon's thoughts, basically, I know how this works, and this doesn't line up with what I know a prophet is, so Jesus can't be a prophet. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And basically, there's no way that Jesus is a prophet, because if he were, he would see this woman the way I see this woman. And Jesus does his sort of Jesus thing, and he starts telling everyone a parable, and then Jesus says the unthinkable, the unspeakable to this woman. Your sins are forgiven. And the response from Simon and the rest of the dinner party underscores their inability to see who is sitting at the table with them. But they ask a question that I hope everyone will ask at some point. The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And that really is the question, who is this? And they asked it because they didn't understand, even though they were face to face with Jesus. However, the woman did understand who Jesus was. They didn't recognize him, but this woman did. And so the question is, which group do you fit in? Do you recognize who Jesus is for who he is? Do I recognize Jesus even when he comes and sort of seems to be doing something different than I expect? Because we can be so quick to judge these narrow-minded ancient people, but really we shouldn't be. Because that's just arrogance, that that we could potentially sort of be camouflaging our own blindness. That their inability to see and to understand Jesus while they were in his presence should cause all of us to go to a posture of open-handed humility. That if they missed him, if they couldn't recognize who was right in front of them, who's to say we might not either? And this last conversation that we're going to look at is sort of a prayer that I think we should pray to sort of grow up how we see God. And it comes from a blind man, actually. Luke chapter 18. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. And the gospel writer Mark tells us this blind beggar was named Bartimaeus. And when he heard the noise of a crowd going past, Bartimaeus asked what was happening. And they told him that Jesus the Nazarene was going by. That basically this was Bartimaeus' once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be healed. Verse 38, so he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Be quiet, the people in front of him yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And if you want to feel convicted of being too busy, here's something that will do that. Uh, Jesus is on his way, not just to his most important appointment, but the whole world's most important appointment. That Jesus is on his way to pay for the sins of the entire world. Verse 40, when Jesus heard him, he stopped. Like that's amazing, convicting, and inspiring all at the same time. That from time to time when we follow Jesus, we must stop being so busy. Uh, Continue on, verse 40. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. And as the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this might seem like a strange question to ask a blind man, but maybe Jesus asks it for the benefit of those standing around. Uh, Maybe he asks it for our benefit as well. And what follows is Bartimaeus' prayer. Now, this might not seem like a prayer because he's answering Jesus' question. But it is a prayer because prayer is communicating with God, and part of that is making our requests known to God, which is exactly what Bartimaeus is doing. Lord, he said, I want to see. So let me ask you, do you want to see? Do you want to see what you aren't able to currently see, even if it requires letting go and surrendering, even if it requires admitting you've been wrong? Do you want to see like that? Unfortunately, I don't think most people want to see like that. Verse 42, and Jesus said, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And instantly the man could see. And in that instance, Bartimaeus could do what the others who could not see beyond their wealth, beyond other people's reputations, beyond their theology, beyond their own own assumptions. That in that instant, Bartimaeus could see what so many people could not see. Lord, I want to see. And this is the prayer that that I want to see the way you see. I want to see what I can't see. I want to see people as you see people. Because seeing is clarifying, but seeing is also terrifying. It usually requires something of us, whether that's compassion, an apology, honesty with ourselves, restoration, forgiveness, admitting we were wrong. However, the alternative is to walk around blind and in the dark. And if we are not willing to see, we may miss Jesus. We will at least misinterpret Jesus. And at the worst, like Judas, We might try to attempt to use Jesus for our own selfish gain. And as we've said in this series, the purpose of prayer is not to bend God in our direction or sort of convince him of something. The purpose of prayer is to align or realign ourselves with God's agenda. And that becomes easier when we see the world and people in the world the way God does. That becomes easier when we see God as he is, not really just as sort of our expectations or our assumptions might make us think. And that becomes easier when we see ourselves as he sees us. Lord, I want to see. Uh, Through various seasons, I've prayed a prayer that is not unique to me, though I don't really remember who I first got the idea from. But I've prayed this prayer a few different ways uh, to start my day. Uh, But basically, the prayer revolves around the different senses of our bodies, usually starting at the top of our body. God, help me to see what you want me to see. God, help me to hear what you want me to hear. God, help me to listen to who you want me to listen to. God, help me to think what you want me to think. God, help me to say what you want me to say. God, help me to love who you want me to love. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. God, use my feet to go where you want me to go. That praying like Jesus means seeing God, others, and the world accurately. So this week, I challenge you to pray some version of Bartimaeus' prayer. Lord, I want to see. Uh, First thing in the morning, throughout the day, uh, when you're tempted to close your hands in anger or or in a desire to control, when someone gets on your nerves, when you're worried or afraid, when you're tempted, Lord, I want to see. 
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. God, thank you so much for this illustration, this demonstration of prayer from Jesus. Um, God, it's also a very humbling sort of thing to read Jesus' interactions with people because so many times the people who were right in front of him didn't see him. They, they couldn't see or understand what he was talking about. And yet he was right there. And so many of us, we need to sort of adjust our posture to a posture of humility because we don't see Jesus physically like they did. And yet we sort of think that we have him figured out or we think we understand. And so God, would you help us to come with this prayer in mind? The, the prayer of Bartimaeus. Lord, I, I want to see. I want to see you as you are. I want to see other people as they are and as you see them. I want to see the world the way that you see the world. Beyond that, God, I just want to live as you want me to live. Would you help me to experience life the way that I should experience life? God, would you help remove our filters? Would you help remove our paradigms, the, the, the obstacles that get in the way of us living out the way that we should live and follow after you? God, would you help any um, uh, preconceived notions or assumptions or sort of the way that we learn things that might get in the way, would you help just break those barriers down? Would you help us to see you clearly? Would you help us to see those around us clearly? Would you help us to see the world that's hurting around us? God, thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Thank you that your spirit can help us to see clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.